This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with Howard French occurred in December 2021. Extremely pleased to have with us for the very first time, uh, Professor Howard French. Uh, he is a Columbia University professor and former New York Times bureau chief in the Caribbean and Central America, West and Central Africa, Tokyo, Shanghai, uh, amongst others. Uh, a fascinating new work called Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. Uh, should be an interesting conversation indeed. Very pleased to have him here. Uh, Howard, uh, how are you, my friend? Well, things are very good. Thank you for having me, Lewis. Good. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, not sure why we haven't had you before, but we will cure that now. Let's do this. Uh, talk a little bit about your work, just briefly for background, for our mm-hmm. audience, your work at Columbia, uh, and why this particular subject uh, is of such interest to you. Uh, well, I've taught at Columbia for more than a decade now in the Graduate School of Journalism, and I came there uh, from, as you said, uh, a long career at the New York Times as a foreign correspondent, working in all the regions of the world that you mentioned. And it was that work, in fact, that put me on the path to writing this book. I, my last assignment for the New York Times was in East Asia. Uh, I covered Japan for five years first, and then I was in uh, China for six years. Um, and my previous book, prior to this present one, was about the history, history of East Asia and about how China has regarded itself as a world power over the ages. And this sort of put me um, into... Uh, made me aware of a lot of literature from er- the early modern age out of Portugal, where Portuguese explorers were first beginning to discover the East, so to speak. And I learned during that research that there was a, a, a sort of an intervening period of a long three decades when the Portuguese were very busy exploring West Africa and making enormous amounts of money in West Africa prior to, in fact, um, Columbus's discovery of the Americas, prior to the discovery, so to speak, of the routes to Asia, prior to the transatlantic slave trade, when Africa was the biggest prize in Europe's mind in terms of trade and, and, and political relationships. And I was astounded by this. I thought, how could I, being a person who has traveled all over the world, speaks many languages, consider myself pretty well-read, how could I have never encountered this before? And so when I finished that, the Asia book, um, uh, um, I, uh, which is called Everything Under the Heavens, that sort of set me on the path to researching these, these prior Portuguese links. And that's where I begin the tale of Born in Blackness. Are we in, in the, and I'm going to, I'll limit this discussion or this question anyway to the United States. Have we had our head in the sand? Have we looked away or are we just genuinely and somehow amazingly, innocently, so to speak, ignorant of all of this? I think we have had our head in the sand. I don't think, I think there's an element of it that we might uh, agree to call innocent. And I think there's another element of it that is something that goes beyond innocence. I would say, however, that we can't, I, I, I sympathize with your request to speak for the moment about the United States, but I think that 
your question actually in, uh, implies a bigger problem. And in, uh, so my book is about how was the West itself created? And so let's pause really quickly right. to ask, what, what is the West? The West, as I think the term is usually used, actually has a, um, a center or a foundation. And that foundation is Western Europe and English-speaking North America, most important of which the United States. And the argument in my book is that, these, that this West was founded on the basis of European contacts with Africa, with European profiting from mineral wealth in Africa, gold in particular in the, 15, in the 15th and 16th centuries, and then subsequently on the slave trade and the plantation economies that this built that were enormously transformational in terms of wealth uh, and prosperity for Europeans first, and then for Americans secondly. And so your question is, were we innocent? Do we have our heads in the sand? I think that uh, this is a very complicated question, and I think that there's an element of human nature involved here. Every civilization uh, cultivates myths about itself. It likes to um, uh, um, weave comforting stories about its own virtues to explain its successes and why um, life uh, in, in, in any given civilization is good for its people and arguably maybe even better than other civilizations. So there's a piece of that. You know, the West has its own stable of stories that it likes to tell about why Westerners are so successful and so powerful and have been so wealthy over the ages. And these stories are based on Western virtues or imagined virtues, some of them real, some of them imagined. And they go to work ethic, they go to thrift, they go to Christianity, they go to the scientific method, they go to Judeo-Christian beliefs, and on and on. And what they do not do and this is, depending on how you come down on it, either a question of head in the sand or actually something a little more troublesome, is, is show much tolerance for understanding and, and, and truly um, assessing the degree to which they um, profited from the uh, extraordinarily vile exploitation of other peoples on huge scales and over a very long period of time. Right. And so I think, I think that is a lot of what we've done, and my book is not about rubbing people's nose in the ugliness, but you can't understand how we got to where we are without recentering Africa in this narrative. All right, let me stay on this for just a second here. I, I don't know in, in the multiple years we've been doing this, I've ever asked this question about mm -hmm. this subject. Uh, we have talked about slavery before. We've talked about its, its, its place in the development uh, of the West in particular. If, impossible to know for sure, but just in general, look back from all the work that you've done in your background, how is the West, how is it different without slavery? Does it, well, I mean, that's an insanely monster question, but just sure. from a hierarching view, philosophically, culturally, economically, etc., Tell us, what, in your opinion, how does the West develop had slavery not been a part of it? Well, I Actually, I love the question, and I don't think it's a difficult question. Um, uh, people will be, uh, many of your listeners will be very surprised to hear uh, the fact that I'm about to share with you, and I welcome you to explore the footnotes in my book if you doubt uh, this information. It's very solidly established. I didn't come up with it on my own. Um, up, up, by, up until the year 1820, 
four times more people were brought to the New World from Africa than from Europe. Pause, repeat. Up until the year 1820, four times more people came to the New World from Africa than from Europe. That means from the very beginnings of this creation of the West, remembering that the West is the combination of Europe and continental North America. From the very beginnings, this was built on the use of slave labor in huge numbers. From the very beginning, there's a big controversy right now underway about the United States and its origins in slavery. What I'm talking about is a much bigger question, and it goes well beyond into the past, beyond 1619 itself. Four times as many people brought from Africa than from Europe. These are the people not only who planted the crops, most notably sugar in the earlier ages and later cotton in the case of the United States, but they cleared the land, they felled the forests, they dug the canals. Anything that was unpleasant, that's what their job was. And so my answer to you is there would not have been a West. Uh, there is no scenario under which the Europeans could have settled, settled is a, is a contested word for good reason, right. so let's put it under quotations. They could not have settled the, the Western Hemisphere to the extent that they did or at the pace that they did without this immense input of African labor. And right. so there wouldn't, there wouldn't have been a West. Um, and so what would you have been left with? You would have been left, I argue, with a European civilization without its Western component in the Western Hemisphere. And not to um, denigrate Europeans, um, Europeans have done many incredible, extraordinary things in the course of their history. However, Europe, prior to the conquest of, of the Western Hemisphere, was, was not a great center of power or achievement in the world. China and India were the richest parts of the world and had been for centuries. Um, and the Arab world and the Middle East were centers of science and learning and things like that prior to it, during the Middle Ages. And so it is this breakout into the Western Hemisphere on the back of African slavery that was the vehicle that allowed the West to rise in the way that it did. So the development, uh, expansion, et cetera, success, imperialism, however you want to look at it, was an implied and assumed factor as the West was being developed. Meaning yes, we're, than... we're, we're undertaking this because we know we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in slave labor. That's mm -hmm. that, because if we don't, oh, we don't have that, then we're not going to do it. Is that in essence what right. happened? Okay. All right. That's correct. I mean, if you look at the early history of the continental America, what becomes the United States, if you look at the history of the 13 colonies went before American independence, their very economic viability was overwhelmingly predicated on trade with slave sh uh, sugar-growing islands in the Caribbean, with Barbados, with Jamaica, with French-owned Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti later on. Uh, the American colonies traded, uh, the, the, the bulk of their trade was with slave islands. This is before American slavery itself becomes as important as it later would. The survival economically in the early period of the American colonies was based on provisioning the slave islands of the Caribbean, because the land in the slave islands of Barbados and Jamaica and these other places I've mentioned was so profitable in the growing of sugar that it didn't make sense to use the land for anything else. And so all they did was grow sugar. 
And they imported, therefore, livestock, they imported lumber, they imported finished goods like furniture and candles and, and alcoholic beverages and dried uh, foods and grain. Everything came from the continental United States. Without that, just simply forget the felling of the trees and the digging of the canals and all of that that I mentioned. Without that, the continental colonies would have had no external trade. England didn't want to buy stuff from them. They only wanted to sell stuff to them. And therefore, our very beginnings in terms of economic prosperity derive from the slave trade. Did you, uh, by the way, you're listening to Lewis at large. Yours truly, Warner Lewis is always from the flight deck. I got an interesting one going here with Columbia University professor and former New York Times bureau chief uh, from around the world, ranging from the Caribbean and Central America all the way to Tokyo and Shanghai, Howard W. French. A brand new work, well, not brand new, but relatively new work called Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans in the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. Uh, as you did your research, uh, I know there were surprises to you. Uh, when you look back on the surprises, the more you thought about it, did you think, you know what, I really shouldn't be surprised that I that this fact is true, that fact is true, and that fact is true. Does that does that make sense? Sure. Um, you know, the first few surprises uh, were, were flabbergasting experiences for me. Um, when I begin to hear things uh, as a well-read person and a well-traveled person that I had never imagined before. But then as you begin, and you know, I worked on this book in, in, in terms of the research for, for roughly a decade. And so, you know, in the beginning, the, the new things you're learning are just, you know, knock you off your chair. But then as you begin to learn more and more of these things, the, the pieces sort of begin to fit together. And uh, you still have many, many aha moments, but, but they don't have quite the, the breathtaking quality to them because you have come to sort of anticipate uh, patterns that get repeated over and over and over again. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, that, that was the, the, just in terms of the sheer surprise, that was, that's how I would summarize my experience. In terms of just our general education, uh, and I know it's much different now than it was in the 50s and 60s as baby boomers were getting their sort of primary and secondary educations, but Tell us, give us a grade, uh, in your opinion, and I, I will even include American universities at this point, mm -hmm. university level, high school level, or whatever. How how good are we? Uh, and again, I guess I'll limit it to the West, or maybe even specifically North America, mm -hmm. uh, in telling the story, telling the truth, so to speak. Uh, are we getting better at it, or do we still have a long way to go? Well, I think that Americans... Uh, as a culture, as a national culture, uh, are very much, um, for historical and geographical reasons especially, kind of bound up in their own story. And we don't have a lot of neighbors. We've got just two immediate, you know, um, contiguous neighbors in Canada and Mexico. And we don't really tend to know or learn much about Canada and Mexico even in school. Uh, and so by and large, I think Americans are, are, are have a, have a deep, uh, the nice way to call it is innocence about world history and the sort of more um, in-your-face way to refer to this would be ignorance. Um, uh, and, and that's a problem. Uh, we don't understand ourselves to the extent that we think our own story is a self-contained story and not big part of uh, a much bigger, much more complicated, richer, and often much more troubling tapestry. So that's the first piece. And, and so I would say in specific about the United States, 
you know, I, 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 it's hard to put a, attribute a grade to it with any precision. Let's call it a C minus. Um, if you've got a pretty good education, like I think I did, uh, there are so many um, ground shaking, just fundamental, foundational things that I have learned outside of school that either overturn or radically alter the picture that I had learned about the world from 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 my formal education. Europeans, I think, also have. Um, they're not as isolated as they are. They, most Europeans have many neighbors. Most Europeans speak several languages. Uh, but the Europeans are caught up in a myth, in, in this mythical uh, thing that I referred to earlier, perhaps even more strongly than the United States. Europe has several um, countries that have uh, very rich and longstanding imperial histories, and they tend not to learn much about that in school at all. Uh, and that's part of the head and sand business that we spoke about earlier. And part, another, the uglier piece of this is that, you know, um, there was a lot of um, atrocity and exploitation associated with empire, and, and, and nobody likes to dwell on ugly things. And so they've written that out of their history. Um, uh, I, I'll just tell you one story that sort of encompasses both America and the West. Um, when we think of how the modern age began, we tend to begin the story with one of one of two different uh, uh, breakthroughs. One of the breakthroughs, probably the most common, is Columbus's discovery of the Americas, the Americas in 1492. Many accounts of how the modern age begins began with that story. The alternative is thinking about how Europeans discovered a maritime route to Asia, uh, and this happens finally when Vasco da Gama, a Portuguese, arrives in uh, the year 1500 or 1501 in Calicut in what is now India, uh, and this is celebrated as an immense breakthrough and the, dawn, the opening of a new age. What we have cut out of that story is this: the, the previous century during which uh, Europeans were absolutely focused on trying to connect with Africa prior to slavery because Africa was known to them to be the source of immense wealth in gold and to have very interesting and articulate civilizations. We just cut that completely out of the picture. And I suggest to you we cut that out of the picture because of what happened subsequently with Africa, the horror of a kind of genocidal experience of four or five centuries of slavery, 12.5 million people landed in chains in the New World, many more millions having died at sea or died on the land in West Africa before they ever embarked on these ships. And so what we have done is cut that ugliness out of the picture and skipped forward to Columbus and, and Dagama and happier stories. Quite interestingly, Dagama and Columbus, both, each of them, worked in this prior age of exploration in West Africa. So we've even cut them out of this earlier story. Let's take a look at this and... Uh... Here's another one. Maybe you have undoubtedly you've thought about it. I don't know what anyone's ever asked you about this, but mm-hmm. from the African perspective, uh, mm-hmm. you're standing in the middle of the continent there. Historically, culturally, socially, how did Africa change, evolve, uh, morph, or its view of itself? change or affected by the fact that people were taken from their continent away to be slaves you not not uniquely africa around the world but for the most part africa do they have what's their sense 
of slavery? What's the, how did it affect their history? How did it affect their sense of self? How did it affect their view of the world, for example? Well, this is a great question. It's a complicated question. And the first piece of an ans- any answer to a question like this is that slavery, it must be remembered and cannot be overemphasized, has been practiced in every region and in every, every civilization in world history. What was different in terms of the transatlantic slave trade was the ushering in an immense expansion of a new kind of slavery that is called chattel slavery, C-H-A-T-T-E-L, slavery. Chattel comes from the same Latin root as the word cattle. And what this implies is that slaves under chattel-like slavery were treated in a beastly way. And this is unlike the way that slavery has been practiced in almost every other age and every other part of the world. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is under chattel, it was intended from the beginning that slaves would be first worked to death. It was understood from the beginning uh, in its very conception that the families of slaves would be that would be broken up, and that the family of that slave families would no longer would not be recognized institutionally, and it was understood under chattel finally that this that enslavement of people under this institution, this innovation that takes place in the early modern age of chattel, would be perpetual. And what do we mean by perpetual? We mean that not only if I am captured as a slave, I will be enslaved and be worked to death. But if I have children, my children will be slaves, and they will be worked to death. And if they have children, their children will be slaves, and on and on in perpetuity. This is new and unique, especially on any scale like this in human history, and it's combined with a notion of skin color, which makes enforcement um, radically simplified for the practitioners of this institution of chattel. That the notion of blackness is associated indelibly with slavery, and therefore they self-reinforce. Now, you asked me how do Africans regard all of this, and how did it affect Africa, which is you know a tremendous question. And I would say that when Africans first encountered Europeans interested in buying slaves in the late 1400s, Africans had no picture of chattel slavery. Chattel slavery didn't exist in Africa. Yes, slavery existed in Africa, and slavery was an institution in Africa where almost everywhere it was a matter of war between neighboring societies. And when the, the, uh, a conqueror defeated um, the subdued society, it would capture the, the defeated people. And then something totally different from what happens under chattel would take place they would be assimilated into the host society. And a generation or two later, there would be no further taint or even marker of any kind associated with their past in slavery. Their children would not be enslaved. And if you inspect African history very broadly across the continent, the stories of the descendants of slaves who subsequently become chiefs or kings or emperors are, 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 are manifold and multi- multiple. There are many, many stories about the descendants of slaves who then become rulers in African society. This is totally unlike chattel slavery. And so when Africans began to sell slaves to Europeans who showed up wanting to buy them for the first time in the 15th century, they had no idea of what this involved in the minds of the Europeans. But they also had never been to the New World and come back to Africa to be able to say, oh, we've seen this project of plantation agriculture and how brutal it is and 
how little chance these people have ever to be taken as human beings in the future, or even their children be considered as human beings. And so Africans entered into this without any opportunity to understand what actually was involved. So that's the first piece, and I'm sorry to go on for a long time, but the second piece is this um, uh, um, has ends up having an extraordinarily um, demographic or population impact on on the African continent. In the 18th century, Africa was uh, is considered by most uh, specialists nowadays to have had in total about 100 million people. Up until that point, uh, as I said, 12 and a half million people had been shipped off, had been delivered into the New World in chains, meaning living. living. Maybe 25% of that number had died at sea while being shipped off into slavery. And another, and these estimates vary because it's so hard to know, another between 10 and 20 million people had died in the pursuit of slaves or in the competition to sell slaves on the African continent. And therefore, take all of this out of the 100 million baseline population of the African continent, and you begin to have a picture how devastating this was for Africa. This drained Africa in population terms to an enormous extent, unimaginable extent. It spared almost no region of the continent, and it had lasting political and social effects on the continent because it destroyed uh, polities or kingdoms that seemed to have solid foundations and might have become modern nations had they been left alone. But moreover, it sowed a kind of distrust and social decay on the African continent because slavery was based, the trade was based on Europeans selling precious goods, luxury goods, prestige goods, and guns to African chiefs to encourage them to go fight against their neighbors so that they could sell captives into the slave trade. And this uh, was an enormous factor in terms of driving social disintegration. Well, it is a gigantic subject. Uh, Howard, we could talk about this for a long time, but uh, as they say, the sundial on the wall says it's time to stop. Uh, we have had a fascinating discussion with, uh, again, Columbia University professor Howard French, also uh, for many, many years, uh, New York Times bureau chief at a variety of locations around the world. But today we've been talking about born in blackness, Africa, Africans, and the making of the modern world. Uh, Howard, how can people, you are a prolific writer, how can people find out more about some of the work that you've done and also pick up a copy of the book? Sure, I've got a website which is howardwfrench.com uh, and you can read reviews of the book and, and learn about my other books there. Um, and of course, uh, you can find my book or should be able to find my book in any good bookstore. If you don't see it, Born in Blackness, please ask them to reorder it or to order it. And if you like to buy books online, of course, it's immediately available in all of the normal places. Um, uh, I, I, I really appreciate uh, the interest of your audience, and, and I, I, I love to support books, not just my own books. So I encourage readers to, to go out and buy books for the holidays. Got it. Well, listen, appreciate your insights uh, and contributions here uh, and input very, very much. And uh, best of luck with this particular work, and have a wonderful 2022. Warner, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and best to you and to the audience as well. Thanks so much. We'll be back with more right after this on Lewis at Large. Howard, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. 
You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.